Hello and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. My name is Ian Wielden and I'm a lecturer in the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University. This series is part of an ongoing project which explores different career pathways across the museum, gallery, heritage and wider cultural sectors. I really want this series to do three things. The first is to help early career professionals understand the huge range of ever-changing job profiles that now exist. The second aim is to help those professionals interpret job titles in the context of different venues and organisations. Sometimes jobs with the same title can be radically different depending on the organisation. The third aim is to help listeners understand that the people that make up any field of work are all human and that in turn plays a significant part in their unfolding career pathway and decision-making processes. A few caveats. The recordings that form the basis for the podcasts aren't technically perfect. They're often grabbed in busy offices and in between meetings, so you can frequently hear the everyday world of work whirring on in the background. Just a final note, these podcasts are edited down from longer conversations, but I've tried to keep in as much of the original content as possible. Welcome to episode 15 of the Cultural Peeps podcast. My guest today is the painter and artist Narby Price. Narby lives and works in Gateshead and Newcastle. He originally studied fine art at Northumbria between 1999 and 2002 and then went on to complete an MA in fine art at Newcastle University between 2008 and 2010. Narby was the Journal Culture Awards Visual Artist of the Year in 2018 and also the winner of the Contemporary British Painting Prize in 2017. He's featured in Faden's prestigious Vitamin P3, New Perspectives in Painting publication and was also a prize winner in the John Moores Painting Prize in 2012. We talk quite a bit about Narby's professional practice in this episode, so I think it's probably helpful here to provide a bit of an overview about how he works. Narby often researches the location of a chosen event, and that can range from significant moments which might have been captured in music, film, television, or places that might have witnessed violence, death, or social change. Those sites can be explicitly historical or famous, or they can be personal or forgotten. He then visits those specific places and documents the site using photography. Back in the studio, he then uses those photos as the basis for his paintings, focusing on the abstract, formal and painterly qualities of those images. If you want to take a closer look at Narby's work, then there's a link to his website in the podcast description or on the project blog. This episode of the podcast is made up of two separate interviews. The first interview took place in December 2017, when Narby was preparing for two major exhibitions at Woodhorn Museum in Northumberland, both of which form a major part of his PhD, an Arts and Humanities Research Council funded collaborative doctoral award that's running in partnership between Newcastle University and Woodhorn Museum. One of those exhibitions featured 30 new paintings produced specifically for that show and were the result of both time spent in and around the town of Ashington and also studying the work of the famous Ashington Group, 
also known as the Pittman Painters. The other exhibition that was shown simultaneously at Woodhorn was curated by him and pulled together paintings from the Ashington group that had either not been publicly seen or exhibited before. It's probably worth providing a quick note of context about the Ashington group here. So Woodhorn Museum is located on an ex-colliery site and that original site and the surrounding village has previously provided the inspiration for the Ashington Group which was formed in the 1930s by a group of coal miners with a desire to learn about art appreciation. The Ashington Group's work has since gone on to enjoy critical success since the 1940s and has recently been the subject for Lee Hall's play Pittman Painters which had theatrical runs at the National Theatre and also on Broadway. My second conversation with Norby took place in July 2019, a year after his exhibitions at Woodhorn, and when Norby was in the process of completing the written part of his PhD submission. And at this point he was also working on a range of new painting and curatorial projects. In our conversations we talk about what it feels like to commit to being a full-time artist, and how this is often initially balanced with other forms of employment. A really interesting theme emerges in our first conversation and that's around the perceived difference between being a student or a recent graduate and being a professional practitioner and how that chasm can often feel huge. This is something that Norby noticed when he returned to Newcastle University as a guest lecturer. We talk about how there's rarely a clear moment when an artist consciously makes that transition or crosses that line into becoming a professional practitioner, but instead how it's often a more gradual, ongoing process of self-awareness, self-discovery and confidence building. The route of being a professional artist is something that can feel very different to other career pathways in the cultural sector. Often other types of employment are structured around contracts and defined job titles that frequently serve to formalise progression processes and can often help play the role of esteem indicators. Both of our conversations took place at B&D Studios in central Newcastle, which is where Narby Studio is located, and we talk about the development of B&D as a community interest company, or CIC as it's sometimes referred to within the sector. Through this we also touch on Narby's involvement in Newcastle's wider artistic and cultural landscape, so we talk about the DIY nature of the local music scene and how this has inadvertently informed his approach to mentoring and peer support and how hopefully these informal support mechanisms and collaborations result in a stronger overall artistic scene that benefits everyone. In addition to Norby's own website, I've put links to as many of the other organisations and projects that we cover in the podcast description. So if there is anything that you'd like to look up that Norby and I chat about in our conversation, then that's a good starting point. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle at Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. That's it from me for now. I hope you enjoy this week's episode and I hope you find it useful. Just tell us a little bit about who who Nobby Price is. <laughs> uh, 
Well, primarily, uh, I see myself as, a, as an artist rather than an academic. Um, I've been working as a uh, self-employed artist, a painter, um, for on and off 15 years or so, but seriously only since, the end, since I finished my MFA at Newcastle University, which I, I finished in 2010. I've, I've been a self-employed artist since then, um, also doing various other roles to kind of pay the bills. Um, but that was kind of, that's kind of what I see is, is year zero, really, when it was absolutely a, a kind of a serious thing and the, what I'd spend most of my time doing. Um, as well as that, um, I'm doing a, a PhD, um, a collaborative doctoral award at Newcastle University. Um, so it's an AHRC-funded collaborative doctoral award uh, working with uh, Woodhorn Colliery Museum in Ashington in Northumberland. Um, I'm sort of coming to the, the end of that, which has gone very, very quickly and is a little bit scary. Uh, so you're in your, th- you're in your third year now? I've just yeah. started my third year, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know whether I'll... I probably will take an unfunded year to write up. Um, a big part of the, the PhD is a, uh, a dual exhibition project, um, which is happening next May to September. So you kind of said there that you define yourself as an artist. So an artist more so than, say, a painter? Or do you make mm. that distinction there? <laughs> it's quite an interesting one. Um, I suppose an artist, but I am very much within that realm, very much a painter. Um, and I, I see, I, I do kind of work that could go into other fields. Uh, you know, I make, make photographs. I have a kind of expanded practice that in, encompasses a, a, a kind of theoretical framework that's around walking and um, the psychogeography and the, the kind of academic constructs around that. First and foremost, within that, I'm a painter, I'd say. You're obviously part of this community where your studio is, mm. which is indeed Newcastle. So do you feel that those terms are important to other practitioners that you work with? Does it hinder or help? I'm not sure, really. Um, I think in terms of what I do, it could potentially be seen as somewhat narrower than, than other practitioners who might describe themselves first and foremost as artists. Yeah. Um, because it's quite a, it is a, a narrow field of discipline that I have. Um, um, I don't know how, whether the discipline comes first or second with other, with other people. Yeah. I think B&D is perhaps a, a bit of a strange example because there's such a divergent range of practice happening in here. We've got everything from a uh, a luthier to a, um, a magazine publisher to a makeup artist, yeah. as well as more traditional mediums. Does that influence your practice, either directly or indirectly? So, you know, are there are other things that you look at and that might steer you, you know, the specific kind of times when you feel like you've been steered by other people's practice and kind of responding to things? Or is it more about the sense of shared purpose that makes the place work? Yeah, I'd say it was the shared purpose. Um, I'm quite a solitary worker. Um, there's something about the, the, the kind of discipline and the practice of painting that is inherently a solitary pursuit. Yeah. So there's a lot of coming in and kind of closing the door. Um, right. 
but there is a, a, a communal and conversational thing that happens on this on this floor, perhaps more so than on some of the other floors in the building. Right. Um, and there's a a real kind of community in terms of um, what happens in the in the gallery space outside um, and the conversations that will happen around that as well. Yeah. You also a musician as well. Mm. Well, a drummer. <laughs> I'm being flippant, but uh, yeah. Um, the music thing's always been going kind of side by side uh, with the with the art. I see them as quite divorced um, practices that they don't really inform each other on a con conceptual level. Whereas a couple of my bandmates, so uh, Rachel and Laura Lancaster, um, the music is more so with Rachel Lancaster. It has really informed her like, her artistic yeah. practice and yeah. became a, a a really key part of it. Um, for me, when when I was more heavily um, involved in music, it was it was more the um, the well, it was a, a kind of DIY um, ethos yeah. that uh, is shared between the music and, and and a lot of the kind of grassroots level arts activities that um, might be part of. Um, just that kind of rolling up your sleeves and making things happen. Yeah. In terms of activities that have a you know that kind of get up and go, we've we've we need to make this happen. To yeah. make this happen, we need to get this set of skills. We need to learn how to use a peer. We need to learn how to use a power drill. You know, those yeah. kind of... The, the interesting part about that performative element, you know, especially if you're playing live quite quite a lot, means that you have a finite deadline, even if the pro the process is, um, you know, evolving from gig to gig. But there is a kind of... It's almost like a miniature exhibition of whatever you're, yeah. whatever, wherever you're up to at that point, and then And then you move forward. Did you ever see the music as a, a, a kind of possibility? Yeah. Um, I think to a, to a large extent, um, I didn't ever really see either of them in as careers in that kind of formal way um, at all. I mean, even when, when I did my undergrad, so I finished my BA in 2002, professional practice... It wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Um, it was the name of a module, right. and you know, it, 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 the whole thing was well. You should take some slides of your of your work, and you should go to exhibitions. That yeah. was your professional yeah, practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I left the university not knowing what it meant to be an artist, um, and kind of fell into the the music thing. Um, I enjoyed doing it. Um, so were you doing that all the way through university? No, not until the end of university. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, that, it it kept me very busy for a bit, and I had a a part time job at an art shop um, to pay the bills, and I think um, there was quite a a buzz around northeast independent music at the at the time, and a lot of my friends' bands were getting signed and going off on tours and all that kind of thing. And, yeah, I remember it well. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to be next. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't quite happen like that, and th there were real pragmatic, practical things that um, stopped that, that stopped all of the bands that um, I've been in um, kind of get into the the next level. So we've done little tours and things like that, but I've always been in bands where people don't drive. Right. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, that's quite. It's, a... it's really limited. I thought you were yeah. going to kind of say there that. You know, there were pragmatic things like you know the funding structure of exhibitions no. means that you might have <laughs> a, 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 you know ability to raise money or yeah. right okay. 
what what did you th- what did you think you might be doing you know when you were I don't know ten or fifteen did you have a yeah outlandish ambition that was it was I was always going to be an artist right okay. um, from as early as I can remember I didn't know what that meant right um, and the older I've got and I I suppose I am an artist now <laughs> I, st- I still really don't know what it really means. So was that because of an interest you had in drawing or yeah, painting, or yeah. was that like a? And it it became a, a absolute obsession from a, a very early age. Um, you know, kind of always drawing and reading. Um, and I, yeah, I was always the kid at school who was good at drawing. From a from about the age of of eight, I could make a drawing that looked like a photograph. Yeah. Um, and only through. You know, it, it, that, again, sounds like I was blessed with a, a wonderful talent. It was through kind of working hard at it and drawing every day and, you know, yeah. kind of all that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I think I always had this idea of I will be an artist of some kind. Certainly for a lot of people that are kind of good at drawing, all of a sudden you're into a different kind of... Mm. You're afforded a different social yeah. space within yeah, the absolutely. groups. And... Yeah, I mean, yeah, to be... To be slightly crude it would it would stop uh me getting my head kicked in yeah. by the big lads and yeah. uh uh then girls would talk to me as well you, know? so you bridged <laughs> the different groups yeah absolutely yeah. yeah and there was like a a bizarre kind of uh low level school celebrity thing going on you know like yeah hey let's have a look at your drawing book yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um and it's quite interesting what you said about it being a kind of intro- introspective practice that continues. Like. Yeah, both. And the way you talk about this being quite a solitary activity mm, for you and yeah. you wanting to close the door. So there's a, there's interesting. So it's quite clearly kind of a therapeutic kind of thing, I guess. Mm. Maybe that's the wrong word. Too strong a word. Yeah. Um, Contemplative. Yeah, yeah. Was there a point that you thought, right, geography and science definitely isn't for me. I'm going to go and do fine art. Um, I always... It was always going to be the, you know, the next thing to do. I didn't know how, I didn't know what the path was. And neither really did the careers advisors at school <laughs> or whatever. Um, I knew that, I so think did, I, did they suggest something to you out of interest there? Um, the A-levels. And then when I got to A-level, a- um, the careers people at the Sixth Form College um, didn't know that... Um, I would have needed to do a foundation course yeah. to, to do a degree. Yeah, that's quite common, um, I think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, no idea. But they luckily the uh, the art teachers did, so that <laughs> well, as well they should. <laughs> uh, so yeah, then it was foundation uh, and then degree. After that, I think that's kind of when it was a little bit right. Like, now what? Yeah. When... Um, I think um, for the until then there'd been a until the end of your your BA as an artist, there's a path. Yeah. You do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this. Yeah. And then it's a little bit like you're turned out onto the street. Yeah. Um, go and be an artist. You've you've done that bit now. And there are, I suppose it's analogous to it, like a, a tree trunk. As soon as you finish your degree, then it goes off into lots of divergent directions of yeah. branches and tributaries of where it could go. Yeah, I think I, I felt a, a little bit kind of confused then. Um I think straight after, straight after my degree, I had a little bit of interest, a couple of shows in London, uh, but it soon very quickly died off, um, and it was a bit, right, need to... 
further so in. Why, why was that? Was that just because of the exposure that, say, Degree Show gave you and that you yeah. had a body of work that was ready to go? Yeah. And then once you've exhausted that, you kind of, what was that? I didn't, you didn't want to show that same work and you wanted to make something new. And then there was the, how do I balance this with? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and uh, the whole thing with, right, what does it mean then to be an artist? What do I need to be an artist? Right, oh, I need a studio. Yeah. Right, that hadn't really occurred to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, that, but that's going to be quite a big, so did, when did you get the studio or a studio? Uh, painted from a spare room in the in the house. Uh, probably yeah, straight after I uh, finished my degree. Um, in your own house. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did a, a year's uh, fellowship at the at Northumbria University when I finished, which basically um, has now evolved into a much more uh, formalised structure. It's uh, called Graduate GSN Graduate Studios Northumbria. Yeah. But when I did it, it was basically, here's a studio, you teach life drawing once a week yeah. for three hours, and okay. that pays for your studio. Um, a quid, quid pro quo kind yeah. of arrangement. Yeah. Very much yeah. so. Um, but back then, the studios were only open um, like nine until five. There was no late working. Yeah. So it, was, it wasn't ideal um, at all. Um, and, yeah, I... Th- not long after that was when I started playing in, in bands and kind of fell fell out with, with painting a bit. Um, I was still very much engaged in the art scene, going to exhibitions, you know, friends with a, a lot of artists and, and whatnot, but really um, got quite into music and co-running this record label and promotions company. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, still working part-time at this point. And spending most of my time there was still this kind of creative outlet with kind of making music and meeting people making posters and all, yeah. all of those kind of things um and being linked to that community yeah of whether it be practitioners artists musicians however you want yeah they define themselves and absolutely define... and having a huge crossover between those scenes as well yeah with, uh people like uh chris rollin paul smith um the side cinema as it was then yeah. and yeah l- looking back on it it was a um didn't really realize at the time but it was there was a real hub and a real yeah kind of um buzz around a yeah a small a small but intensely working community can you identify why you fell out with painting a little bit it was purely money money and opportunity um things like uh you know Pants expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> spending yeah. thirty quid on a, on a tube of cadmium red when it was uh, the the choice between that or something else. Yeah, it, yeah. it was very much that so kind practical, of practical. Very, orientation. very practical. Yeah. So was it? I mean, you know, it might, this might not be the case, but quite similar, I think, that had music kind of running in the background and and fine art. And I think if I'd if I'd have done music at university, I'd probably have not been doing music now, and I mm. would have been practicing. You know, I'd have been doing a lot more yeah, printmaking. Yeah. I almost spoilt it for a while by uh, putting too much pressure on it. So those kind of that that part of the creative process was damaged, I think, for me a little bit because I kind of started to associate it with feedback from other people yeah. rather than this thing that was for me. Uh, so much of how my interest developed and is is down to real practical things. Uh, if um, if for instance. 
I'd sold a lot more paintings straight from university. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have probably, got yeah. so yeah, pissed yeah. off with, <laughs> yeah, with yeah. painting so quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a different kind of gratification as well, a different kind of yeah, feedback, yeah. isn't it? You know, you've got that instant. Yeah. Um, you can make something with music, you can labour over it forever, but you can also make something really quickly, yeah. get it out there and move on. Whereas, you know, an exhibition of 20 paintings, as, yeah. as we... <laughs> or 30. Can, or 30, yeah, <laughs> can take, you know, years yeah. uh, to, to, to complete. So, yeah. so you kind of talked about being based in your room at home before you got a studio mm. and then... So was getting a studio, was that a big thing for you? That well, was that a kind I, of pivotal? I didn't get a studio until after I finished my MA. Right, okay. Um, but you had a studio within the university framework? Um, when I was doing my MA, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we're talking, I suppose, jumping back when we were, when I was still in the, I, still doing the music thing. Um, didn't have a, a studio at all for most of that time. Yeah. Um, stack of paintings in my spe- in the corner of the bedroom was yeah. pretty much what I had. Um, and then I think I'd, I'd been to a particularly poor exhibition, <laughs> like a, a sleepless night where I thought, oh, God, I can do better than that. Um, I That's should, quite interesting. Yeah. Should, so that kick-started you again. Yeah, really did, yeah. So um, somebody else's crap paintings <laughs> made you want to make some better. Yeah. That's kind of, you know... That's like the fundamentals of rock and roll, isn't it? <laughs> That's kind of, you know, I can do this better. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think I'd, I'd felt the itch. Um, and all this time I'd been uh, working in an art shop, and that was kind of counterproductive as well, yeah. because the I'd been surrounded by paint and brushes all day, and the last thing I wanted to do when yeah. I got home was get more of them out. So how long did you work there for? It was quite a while. A long time, Um so I, I worked there part time all the way through my um, all the way through my MFA and beyond as well. So I was working there like two days a week for eleven years. Wow. Um, and you know it was kind of comfortable, and I got cheap art materials. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you weren't I, using so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I worked there the amount of base hours I needed to cover the rent and bills. Right. So that was like your safety yeah. net and then everything on top of that was disposable. Yeah. When you're working in the house at home, is motivation an issue for that? You know, what... Oh, yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, there's something really good about having a studio because it's a, it's a mindset thing. Yeah. I'm going to this space to do this yeah. thing. You know, it's a, it's a real, I'm going to work yeah. kind of thing. Um, and in the yeah working at home, there's just so many blurred boundaries. Exactly, yeah. so many distractions. There's a thing that Alan Bennett wrote about uh, working from home and writing at home, um, and he said once you've uh, done the washing up and cleaned the uh, the filter from the tumble dryer, you can waste an extra fifteen minutes by getting a bent coat hanger and getting the fluff <laughs> from underneath the filter. <laughs> But that's all, it is weird, a uh, kind of odd thing that, you know, you want to create work and then you're creating diversions to yeah. prevent that from happening. Yeah. Is that the, just the human condition you think, it might be, of procrastination it? <laughs> that's there? So, you, so was, where, where was your first studio? Uh, I did have one at um, Weirgood very briefly, um, but it was towards the end of when we're good was a thing and I didn't, I literally didn't use it. And after I finished my MFA, I was sharing a 
studio with Laura Lancaster and Susie Green and later Rachel Lancaster as well at Holt Yard. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of spaces there, um, but they were uninhabitably cold. Right. Um, like, um, I work with acrylic paint and acrylic paint doesn't like cold, it separates. Yeah, yeah. And, that uh, cold. That cold, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and there was a little bit of a dispute at the at the end of that tenancy because uh, the landlord had let people into the studio right. uh, without our consent, so we, we left there. Then after that, we uh, had a space at in an empty shop um, that the art centre owned um, right. on Westgate Road. Um, there for maybe a year or so, um, and then then uh, this one yeah. here at B&D. So when did you move in here? Five years ago or something like that. So quite a while. Yeah. And how did that opportunity come up? Was that to do with the network of people that you were involved with at the yeah. time? So it was around the time that uh, there was a, a, a real spike in CICs being formed in Newcastle. Yeah. Um, we'd had Newbridge around the corner and then... Um, this building, uh, Commercial Union House, which is run by a company called White Box Projects, um, and each floor of this building is a different CIC. Yeah. And two of my colleagues at the art shop um, set up this uh, this CIC. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so I was the first studio holder, and they'd they got a small uh, pot of money from the council to help set up, yeah. with which they bought timber. And uh, and boards right. built my studio. Right. Okay. Literally one on this entire floor, <laughs> and I started paying my rent. With my rent, they bought the next bit of wood to buy right, them. Okay, the, I see. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of quite kind of gratifying. Yeah, in yeah. An interesting way that, in that sense, you can see that you're a real stakeholder. Yeah. Both in terms of the community, but in that physical infrastructure that's there. Yeah, and the way that CICs work is all to do. You know, we're we're all kind of members of the board, and yeah, yeah. Although you know, I out was the first person here, but they still haven't finished my wall up there. <laughs> still half a board missing up there. <laughs> How many times have I paid for that board now? <laughs> yeah, but you've paid for a lot of board for other people. There. That's, that's the way you look at it. So, so you've got this kind of network here and this kind of community that you're part of that's mutually beneficial in lots of ways, a space to go to and people to kind of bounce ideas off and kind of, you know, encourage each other. How about the relationships with other venues? Looking at your exhibitions, you've had exhibitions with some venues three or four times throughout your career. So how Mm. does, how important is that in in your line of work? I I think it's uh, it's, it's vital uh, to maintain kind of good relations with a a variety of of different types of, of institutions um, and the gallery that I'm represented by, uh, Vane, who are in this same building, um, they're very good in terms of, um, of flexibility and kind of a non-exclusive agreement. Yeah. So it, it, that's actually, I think it's quite common um, to have nothing in, to have handshake agreements in the, yeah. in the art world. Um, most of the most of the people I know who have gallery um, relationships from the same kind of level as me up to people who were turning over 
maybe half a million a year, they've still got the same kind of handshake agreement. Yeah, kind of quite informal. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of nice, though, in the world that we live in. Yeah, there's... I suppose it's just mutual respect and trust. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is quite interesting having... So with a few of my friends who are, who are kind of art world names, um, we don't talk about the business side of it very much, but we have. And I've been really quite surprised by that, these, these people who are turning over, you know, hundreds of thousands yeah. of pounds worth of yeah, work yeah. to have that informality yeah. with it. I wonder whether that's sector-specific. It certainly wouldn't extend to music, would it? Through, obviously, through your PhD, you're, you're working quite closely with Woodhorn because that's the mm. nature of that collaborative doctoral award. Yeah. So that, that kind of experience, what, what's that been like? It's been really interesting. It's been, um, I suppose, Woodhorn are probably the, the, the biggest institution that I've worked with in terms of them having um, a, a, a different remit, not just a visual arts remit. Than, yeah. You know, they're, uh, they've got a kind of community remit and, uh, and are accountable to various different sources. So yeah. kind of seeing the, a little bit of the, the other side of that has been quite interesting. These um, so less DIY. That was the phrase that you used to describe yeah. some of the other kind of. There's still quite a, an element of that, though. Um, there is an all venues, I think. <laughs> yeah, DIY spit and sawdust, isn't yeah. it? Um, but yeah, having um, I suppose accountability and having structures that need to be um, adhered to that aren't necessarily. Uh, what I would do myself yeah. or, or whatever. But that being said, there's been a, a lot of flexibility and they've been really, really supportive. They've been really good. Um, of your work and the process that you're going through, or you, yeah. in that, that sense. Yeah, the, um, just in terms of facilitating things, um, presenting new opportunities as well, and having, um, I think, the, the real uh, benefit of the, the PhD and the um, support of... The university and Woodhorn is is the, having the the weight of those names yeah. and the associations behind them yeah. in terms of um, kind of opening doors, I guess, yeah. uh, and having the the, the reach. Um, that's a good word, isn't it? Reach. Yeah. <laughs> having the reach that they've Have you got. seen impact. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you've end, you you kind of ended it up in a situation where you're sitting on. Board of Trustees, are you? That's right, yeah. Ashington Group. Yeah, yeah. So, so was that kind of part of the collaborative doctoral award? Was that part of an, the original offer or was that something that has organically happened out of the process? That's organically happened. Um, a lot of uh, the, the interest of studying the Ashington Group uh, for me was the, the fact that it's from a, uh, there's only one book, it's from this kind of singular narrative. Yeah. Um, so a lot of what I've been doing is kind of scratching away at that and um, and part of that is uh, forming relationships with people. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of kind of trust garnering and, um, and potentially sensitive um, relationships that need to be brokered. Yeah. Um, and I've been very lucky in, uh, so far in... Everyone's been absolutely great and supportive and open and accepting, um, and yeah, being asked to sit on the on the trustees uh, is just came about through 
making those relationships. I think the both institutions um, recognise the the particular path uh, that I've uh, approached the PhD from, and it is very much from an artist's point of view. Right. So that the initial um, proposal. Um, so a little, well, a little bit about this set of of uh, collaborative doctoral awards. Um, it's one of three collaborative um, awards, the AHRC funded collaborative awards, um, in a round that um, that Newcastle got, um, and they're they're all responding to a piece of research by Tate called Art School Educated, yeah. which specifically looks at. Um, Newcastle University's contribution to fine art pedagogy between the 30s and the 70s. Um, so one of them um, that uh, Melanie Stevenson is, is doing is about the teaching collection of the Hatton Gallery. Uh, the other one that uh, Harriet Sutcliffe is doing is about the basic design course, uh, Hamilton and Passmore. And um, the, the call out for the one that I'm doing was about informal art education um, with the Ashton Group as yeah. a starting point, so how th- these were really advertised like jobs, um, but they were that's as pretty much as specific as the call out was, um, and it was really open to in, to in your interpretation to interpretation of that, to respond to, yeah, to that uh, very much so. So um, as I said, the the I was interested in there being a single uh, singular narrative about the Ashton Group. Um, Bill Fever's book, um, which is very, um, it's, a, it's, it's pretty much a timeline, yeah. uh, but from a, um, in, I suppose in a sociological context, but written by an art historian, if that yeah. makes any yeah. sense. Um, there, there's been no writing um, about how the paintings were made. Yeah. Um, so that interested me. Um, I'd been familiar with the, the paintings for, for years, um, not in a in a kind of very intense way or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so going back to look at the the collection um, on mass um, as a painter and as someone who's been very much engaged in the technical side of painting, um, there were things that really jumped out at me yeah. um, that were really quite odd. Um, very sophisticated techniques like leaving uh, the color of the support visible as a compositional device. Yeah. Um, some things about a certain uh, green that recurred across different paintings um, by different artists in the group. Um, things like particular distortions of the, of the boards that they were painted on. Um, things like uneven matte and gloss areas. And these all kind of suggested quite um, contradictory things in a way. Um, it suggested um, sophistication um, and really belied the fact that, or the, the interpretation that they were complete naives. Yeah. Um, so it, it, on one hand it did that, on the other hand, um, the supports were obviously uh, bits of old board that had been left over from something yeah. and they hadn't been adequately prepared. So there were these kind of like twin narratives and part of my uh, initial starting point was well, let's think about how they've been made. Let's yeah. try and analyze that. Um, and I proposed a, a practice-based uh, approach where I would recreate um, certain supports right. um, and certain working methods. 
kind of questioning whether the task, the thing that they were tasked with by Robert Lyon, who was a teacher at King's College, um, whether he was kind of setting them up for a fall in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, not intentionally, not maliciously, but um, his idea to have this group of um, inexperienced artists learn about the techniques, learn about the challenges of the artist by making paintings, yeah. whether or not that was, um, whether it was doomed to failure because yeah, they were yeah. working with such um, low materials yeah. or inadequate materials. Um, and that, that's kind of how it started. And it's kind of developed a little bit more. Um, it's developed slightly away from that. It's veered away from it a little bit. But that is kind of the the crux of it, the anchor point of it. Obviously, the Ashington Group and that body of work, in the, certainly in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so, has had a, a big exposure through different channels there. Mm. Do you think that's helping you at the moment in terms of establishing yourself? Is there a noticeable kind of difference in the interest in your work because of mm. that relationship that's there? No would be the short answer. Right. Um, there's... I suppose there's been uh, there's been interest in perhaps in my name, um, right. but in terms of any how how that's had any effect on my work as a wider thing, I don't think it really has. Right. I think my it's had. Um, I think it's it's invented this kind of secondary persona. There's Navi Price the artist and Navi Price the researcher. Right. Okay. Um, and I'm hoping uh, having these this exhibition next year will kind of tie those tie, things together, together a bit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And the other part of the uh, the exhibitions next year is the uh, the call out that I did in the press for um, unseen Ashinta yeah. group work. So having that curatorial element as well. Yeah. Um, I think the curatorial thing having my name attached to that and having the exhibition as a painter as an artist yeah uh, that will hopefully draw them to but it, that's interesting though the decisions that you've made there you know it's like you, you you could have just approached it and as a painter and that's your response yeah but you've kind of pulled in this networking element with other people established cultural commentators and you know being linked with the trustees and there's the research element this curatorial element so you're kind of it's really interesting that it's yeah. kind of opened <laughs> back out there i mean is that was that a conscious decision or is that something that just you know interest has kind of led you know oh that's interesting i'll i'll respond to that yeah i, I didn't see it as um as something would happen at, at the beginning um it just yeah it, it evolved and it, it felt logical um, and again, it was a slightly reactionary thing to to practical restrictions. Yeah. So part of the the terms of um, the what's termed as the permanent collection, the ninety or so paintings at Woodhorn by the Ashington Group. Part of the terms of that trust are um, they're not allowed to be split up, rehung, right, okay. moved from their dedicated gallery. Right. Um, and I I was really wary of certain certain things. So like I, I I've gotten to know Ashington quite well, quite a lot of Ashington people quite well. Yeah. And I'm not a miner or whatever. I'm not from yeah. mining stock. Yeah. Um. So making paintings about that, I thought, well, no, that you know that feels like, like hijacking the yeah, subject matter. Absolutely, that's... and having this, uh, yeah, this arm's length. Uh, from a distance kind of 
observational relationship with the, with the subject matter. So I thought, how do I avoid that? I don't. I didn't want my new paintings to feel like tacked on. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 it could have been a really glib act. Yeah. Um, do I go and try and find some of the locations they painted and? Yeah. It would it would feel very shallow and very surface, and um, there's a mining put in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I I thought I needed to have something that would act as a bridge between the yeah. the permanent exhibition of Ashina Group work that is there in aspic yeah. <laughs> in amber and yeah, not allowed yeah. to move, um, and having conversations with people and meeting uh, meeting people around Ashington and and um, I suppose getting to know what that group of paintings and that heritage, what position that holds in Ashington. Yeah. It just occurred to me there's got to be more paintings. Yeah. There has to be. Yeah. You know, it's a 50-year tenure of production yeah. and that isn't easily just distilled down where to... They, yeah, yeah. Whether and if, how and yeah. they survived. and Yeah. So we did, we did this call out and we had a really good response to it. Uh, it turns out there's quite a lot of stuff that um, had had the power to change the story of the Ashina group right. a little bit too much. So it's very curated. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's always been curated from the very beginning. Curated yeah. initially by Robert Lyon. Yeah. Um, then by the, when they got a lot more awareness themselves, um, by themselves, they were very selective about what they'd keep. Yeah. Um, and then curated by Bill Fever and later Lee Hall and <laughs> kind yeah, of mean, yeah. mean out to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of paintings that didn't really fit the, the MO um, and a lot that weren't very good. Yeah. So it's been quite deli delicate to select. There's paintings of Frank Sinatra by members of the Ashton Group. Right. To, to, com yeah. completely irrelevant yeah um well irrelevant to the narrative yes of, yeah, exactly not yeah. necessarily irrelevant yeah. technically or yeah and the, the i'm putting together an exhibition but there are other exhibitions that would be quite interesting um so there's one of the members jimmy floyd um did a, a painting a little watercolor of uh of woodhorn mill this uh, ruined mill um in old woodhorn village which is maybe a mile from the museum. Um, I thought, oh, okay, that's that, that's okay. And then I, then I found another one, identical. Right. And another yeah. one. Uh, I, right. There were about 12 of them that, uh, that came up. So I think he'd, he'd just been doing them. Knocking in, them out, selling them. Or... or giving them for Christmas presents or something. Right. It'd be quite interesting to have an exhibition of this. <laughs> of just the 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah identical okay. paintings. Yeah, yeah. When you saw the advert then for that, that PhD, did that just come at the right time for you? Yeah. And you were attracted to the content or, or you could see the potential for your own practice in the, in, um, the, in the content? I could see the potential for my own practice. Yeah. Um, I must admit, I didn't, there, were, there were things that I didn't really know about um, this term, the Pittman painters then. Yeah. Um, I associated it with Norman Cornish. Yeah. Um, and... Um, he wasn't a Pittman painter. He was a, a Pittman who was a painter yeah. rather than a Pittman painter. Um, and initially, that really put me off. Right. So I really don't like his work. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, so that initially put me off, and I did, and I did a little bit of kind of um, 
research around it and that as soon as I realized that, that it was slightly divorced from that I was happier about it and yeah. um and I think I, I really my imagination really got caught with the uh the the unique elements of of the of the story and the fact that it was a story um this kind of constructed story yeah and then seeing how um it did offer the potential for for making work and looking at the at the work and it it, it I felt that um, it was a, a genuinely different angle. Yeah, to look provided at. you enough space. Potentially, the three years, with the support that that gave you, both through Woodhorn, the university, and some financial stability there, yeah. that you could then explore in a way that was beneficial to your practice and allow you to kind of establish, yeah, you know, some, you know, exhibition outputs and things like that. So, yeah. So I guess the inevitable question there is, is that you're you're working with the university now. So do you see that as an avenue potentially that you might continue? Yeah, I mean, if if it continues, I, I that would be great. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love it. Um, but it's a it's a hand to mouth. Uh, yeah, it's not very stable being an associate lecturer on yeah. a, a part time associate lecturer at university. Yeah, and it will inevitably, I imagine, only be term to term yeah so breathing rooms perhaps too too strong a term yeah, for okay. it but yeah I'd, I'd very much like to continue with that i do enjoy it it's been quite nice previously i've, I've done quite a lot of uh, visiting artist stuff and uh drop in workshops doing specific things like teaching people how to make paint and things yeah. like that um it's been very nice um this term this semester uh, having my own tutorial group and being able to have that long engagement with the same, yeah. of, of engagement. I think it's good for the, the students as well. Um, and pre previous to this, a few years ago, I did a similar thing at Northumbria as well. Um, but again, only for one semester. So does that give you a confidence in your own practice in some way? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because, um, I don't know, I think, I think we all have imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, yeah, and you go back and you think, well, they, I don't, I don't feel much older than these people. Yeah. But then you kind of sit down and you, you realise that, oh, hang on, yeah, this was a long time ago when I was at that stage, and I've done a, I've actually done a hell of a lot since then. And yeah. I think um, one thing that's massively changed since I was in that position on a fine art degree is the professional practice thing is much yeah. better now. Yeah. Um, you know the the internet works <laughs> in yeah. a whole different way than it used to. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think people are, are much more engaged and I think for a fine art student, something like Instagram is really good um, or has the potential to be really good and has the potential to be really bad as well. Yeah. Um, it's really, it's it's made for some lazy artist research. <laughs> <laughs> Who? <laughs> it's not art, it's just a big drawing of an eye in a biro. <laughs> There's the kind of the, that that kind of self promotion thing. You kind of mentioned Instagram there, and then you were kind of talking before about um, a, a kind of curated version of of you know yourself or like the curated version of the Pittman painter's story mm. that's there. So how does social media help or hinder you in 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 your practice? I think it helps. Um, well, just in terms of accessibility and. Um, having something that is, it's a, I suppose it's a different function. I, I, I maintain uh, three social media things. I've got a, 
uh, Twitter and Instagram and uh, Facebook. And within Facebook, I've got a personal one and an artist mm-hmm. one. And Which I get confused about. Yeah, I changed the name to Nobby Place <laughs> Artist now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so I, th- I think it's... And there's a different voice for... But that's interesting, though, within itself. Mm. So there's, the, there's that kind of dialogue that you have with your friends and then, you know, a dialogue that, that is slightly different, I guess, around the work that you have. Yeah, yeah. So the, the artist page is slightly different, registered, slightly different cadence. Yeah. Um, and it is specifically for the, for the art, for exhibitions, yep. uh, new paintings or whatever. And in terms of how um, I engage with it, I engage with it in a very different way than I would with my website, for instance. Yep. So the website um, is very much, you know, just a receptacle for, for information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's very little kind of voice uh, with the website. Yeah. It's a lot more neutral. Um, Whereas, yeah, it's a it's a communicative thing, and a two way communicative thing. I suppose that's a key thing. Yeah. Uh, but I see them. I see the the different platforms as very discrete media. Um, so there are certain things that um, I I wouldn't put on Instagram that I would put on Twitter. That yeah, and, and, yeah, you know. and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're quite generous with your time. I think generally in terms of mentoring and in terms of the mm. opportunities. Um, that you create for other people there. So does that come from experience of being mentored yourself? I suppose not directly. I think it comes from uh, the the DIY thing Um, and very much from from music. Um, I think there's a real kind of... um, let's all muck in kind of thing with the, with the yeah. music thing. Some, to a degree, I think more so in the art world. But I, I, th- I remember a, a very formative experience when I was getting into bands. So I'm a, I'm a drummer uh, and I had the, the, the worst cheap kit when I first started out. And uh, speaking to uh, Tom, uh, Tom English from Maximo Park, uh, we were doing a gig with, with them and... Uh, and I needed a, what did I need? It was like a, a bass drum pedal. And the standard thing is you bring your own bass drum yeah, pedal, you bring your own snare and, and your own cymbals, yeah. yeah. Um, and I didn't have one. I was like, ah, oh, shit. Oh, Tom, I'm really sorry to ask. Is, is there any way I can, yeah. I can use that? He's like, oh, yeah. You Tom's always been quite generous with yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, use whatever. More than I ever was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> use whatever you want. You can even use my sticks if you want. Yeah. It's like, oh, right, wow, okay. And, you know, that... I think that's always stuck in my head as one yeah. of those kind of moments, and yeah, I suppose to within within reason, I I I try to so help whenever the, I can. Yeah, the sacrifice means it results in a stronger overall picture yeah. for everybody involved in it, as as much as it being for yeah. personal kind of gain. There. Yeah, absolutely, and it just makes the scene stronger. Yeah, and it you know it it fosters relationships, it it, it makes trust. Yeah. Um, and that can only be a good thing. I remember having similar formative experiences about the same time with the art world. So getting to know visiting artists when I was on yeah. my undergrad, getting to know like Paul Housley, Roger Kelly and George Shaw. So the Shaw. exposure to those people yeah. like, with and, the doorway in. And also um, them, I suppose at that stage when I was you know, 20, 21, I, I saw that gap between these people who I could 
seeing art, art magazines yeah. as, and visiting artists as kind of casmic. Yeah, um, yeah. And little things like um, they come and do tutorials. Oh, who's got the pub? Yeah. Um, and, oh, next time you're in London, give, give me a shout, yeah, come yeah. to this preview. That they're just human beings the yeah, same as yeah. everybody else. Yeah, yeah, and you realise that this kind of, this world, this creative uh, realm um, isn't kind of miles and miles away. It's, it's just at arm's length. Um, it goes back, though, to imposter syndrome thing, though, in mm. a way, because it's almost like somehow we expect that we'll get over a line somewhere and then all of a sudden we'll be... yeah whatever it is that we yeah. are trying to be artists or... Yeah, I mean, I've had that or... several times. Every kind of stage I've got to where I'm at a, a, something that I looked up to previously, so yeah. like getting into the John Moores Prize. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For the first time, I was thinking, right, I'm going to be beating the galleries away with a shitty stick. <laughs> uh, no, didn't happen. Uh, being a prize winner in the John Moores yeah. Painting Prize, well, come on. Yeah. <laughs> No, it didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> getting in the vitamin P books. Yeah. What? Come on, I'm going to be... I've yeah, been rolling yeah. it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you just... Re- yeah, you just realise that it's all... Yeah, it's 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 important and it's great and it's impressive and all the rest of it. But it doesn't change. But, the, yeah, at the end of the day, you're still the same human being. Yeah, yeah. exactly, and, yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't make you either. No. Um, at all. But I think sometimes when you look back on those processes and you think, you know, you're 10 years later and you think that was the most important thing in the world at the time and you look back on it and you kind of think, I don't know what really I was expecting to have mm. changed. You know, I was still exploring practice in the same way. I was still trying things. You know, would I all of a sudden, by being given a prize, you know, you know, stop having to yeah. make mistakes or whatever it is. Oh, I'm, you know, we mustn't make mistakes anymore. Because... I think it goes back to kind of the the amount of naivety that, that uh, I don't think it was just me, but like kind of not understanding what what a career in in the arts really was or yeah. really is. I think it's changed. Um, I don't think that, uh, certainly in fine art, I think that kind of the model of um, the artist is in the studio and makes work and gives it to the gallery and then the gallery goes and sells it and gives the artist half of the money. Yeah. I don't think it happens like that yeah. very much, apart from for a, a very small select group Those of people. Those managed to find the patron yeah, exactly. of their dreams. Yeah, yeah. So what what does your average day look like? What does your... I, I try and do at least two full days painting. Um, whilst the PhD's been happening, um, there's been at least um, one day doing either writing or admin things. Um, the nature of uh, the pulling together this exhibition has been, yeah, it's been spinning a lot of plates. So yeah. I'm still at that spinning plate stage. Um, and earlier in the process, it might have been spending a day in the archives at, yeah. at Woodhorn. Um, but I suppose as, as well as uh, doing the, the PhD, I'm also maintaining... Um, my practice as well, yeah. Um, and this last year, year and a half, has probably been the busiest I've ever been. So it, yeah. it'll be making paintings that are outside of the the PhD uh, work. It'll be making. I did a series of lithographs recently. Um, had a big solo show then. Um, shows in London, transporting work, supplying for things. Yeah. Um, 
And, so more uh, plates spinning. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, think about getting another plate that I can, <laughs> can get going. Yeah, in. Yeah. Um, Watching the wobbly one and yeah. how to replace that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and now teaching as well. Are you thinking beyond the exhibition and the write-up period? Or are you trying to introduce ideas as you move through this process and see which one potentially looks like an attractive road? I don't know, to be quite honest. Um, there, There's a, a solo exhibition in London that's happening after the um the Ashington exhibition yeah and that's as far as ahead as I've planned yeah um who knows what what know, happens, what happens. That. Yeah, yeah yeah and yeah things are I'm kind of in the fortuitous position where things seem to be coming up yeah all the time um and after the uh the PhD um I'll I've got a role at AN um the old artist newsletter yep. that will pay the bills. Yep. Um, I think the, the thing with um, being an artist in, in quite a traditional way that I am, I guess, in a lot of ways, is um, after, you've, after you've been around for a certain amount of time, people start noticing yeah. um, and opportunities start to snowball, yeah. offers for shows or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think it is just a, a question of of doing stuff and, and you know, the, the old advice for uh, any artist is just show people what, yeah, you, what you're doing. Yeah. I don't think there's a... I don't think that will ever go out of way. I think there's a lot more ways to to maintain a, a career in the arts as an artist now, sort of socially engaged practices yeah, and yeah. workshops and uh, working with different um, areas of the sector that perhaps are, are, are more... Um, cash rich in terms of opportunities and funding opportunities yeah. um and i'd say you know probably 80 percent of people who are maintaining pra- careers as practitioners will end up doing that yeah. um or adult education or whatever yeah. so I, i'm not kind of i'm not i'm not actively looking to do anything like that at the moment um but I've, you know, I've certainly done adult education in the past to kind of keep things ticking over. Yeah, well, I guess but you could say that the relationship with the university is providing some of that opportunity yeah. for you, just in a, 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 I guess, a slightly more formal yeah. setting. Yeah, and it, it takes away some of those uh, skills that you end up having to um, teach yourself, the, the marketing, the, uh, yeah. the admin and all that kind of stuff yeah, around yeah. it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I am being slightly flippant, but um, yeah, I suppose the the thing that I always do is try and look for the the next push as many yeah things out there and see what comes back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a kind of survival mentality about that resilience because you're confident enough in your practice. That, you know, there are lots of dots out there, and you'll be able to link them together somewhere to find the pathway through. Yeah. And and, I, you know, I I guess the interest. I mean, you've had a a great year this year. You've you know the contemporary art prize is fantastic. So, and you know, I know you were saying that in the past some of those opportunities you think might have generated more opportunities, but maybe they did, and you're not quite sure about it. Yeah, I mean, again, I was being slightly flippant. Yeah. So the being in the the first uh, John Moore's prize got me gallery representation in Milan. 
Yeah, so, yeah, I spent a, a, a month in Milan making paintings for a solo exhibition there yeah. and maintained this relationship with, with them. But in, re in real terms, that equates to uh, selling maybe two grand's worth of work yeah. once every two years. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, kind yeah, of, it's yeah. a good kind of box tick. Yeah. And, you know, that means I can say, I am an international artist yeah. now. <laughs> so you're based here in Newcastle. You know, how does that work? you know, in terms of you know, how you sell yourself? I it never, well, I suppose at one, at one stage, um, I applied to do my, uh, my MA at the, the Royal Academy Schools. Um, I didn't get in. Um, and this was, I think it was the year after I'd finished my undergrad. Right. Looking, looking back on that, I'm glad I didn't. I wouldn't have been ready for an yeah. MA then. Um, and I think a little bit of that was was um, about that career path thing that um, I mentioned, you know, after your degree, then you can go off in different directions. Yeah, yeah, I thought, yeah. well, one of those is doing an MA. Yeah. Um, I think there was a lot of, um, of value attached then to doing a, a London MA. Yeah. Um, a and lot I, of people feel that pull. Yeah to go London in particular. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly in the fine art realm. Yeah. Um, I, and I don't know whether that was a kind of time thing. Um, I still think, you know, people do feel that, that pull, but I don't think it's as important now to have a, a London art school MA as it was. Um, I think the, the landscape has, has changed mm. hugely. Um, and a lot of it is, again, that thing that I mentioned about the 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 ways of sustaining a a, a career the yeah. the the gallery model not being as prevalent yeah. or perhaps not at all prevalent as it yeah. as it used to be um, so I suppose th thinking about it um, the real reason I didn't move there is is purely financial um, it would just be Crippling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely crippling to, yeah. to, to move it's to London. It's a difficult thing, that, isn't it? Because people feel the, the law. And once you go, it's like kind of Dick Whittington thing, <laughs> isn't it? Like, you know, and you kind of get down there and then think, well, if I go back, it's like starting again. Yeah. So you stay there and then, you know, you know if you're not careful, you end up 30, mid-30s, 40, mid-40s. before, And then you think, what are we doing? Or like, how, yeah, does, yeah. how does this work? I think the uh, the, the other big difference is the internet works now yeah um and it's it's possible for me to you know have a a gallery in milan and, yeah. and live in gateshead yeah yeah um and you know how quickly communication happens the, the one thing that hasn't changed um and isn't likely to anytime soon is the art market is in london yeah um and you know that 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 is difficult, but you know, there's it's a life choice. It's a life choice, and there there is that kind of drop in the ocean thing in in, in London as well, you know. That, and I, I think it's that kind of thing about finding your niche, uh, and you know, kind of how how you decide what your niche is and how you how you furrow that. If you were doing it all again. You know, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? I think there's things that, um, that tie, that 
anyone who's uh, making a success in inverted commas as a, of a career as an artist have in common. Uh, the, the, the main one is doing the hours. Um, yeah. And for ev- anyone I know who's uh, maintaining a career in the arts, um, I, I still think um, a lot of people end up seeing a fine art degree as a soft option. Um, I still think that happens. And uh, the, the the key thing that everyone's got in common who's making a success of it is that they're, they're at the studio at half past eight, nine o'clock, yeah. and they're still there at seven o'clock. Yeah. Or they're, you know, they're washing their brushes at seven o'clock. They put the, the, the hours in at the coal face, as it were. Yeah. Um, and I think just making yourself known and making yourself visible. So hello, Nobby, and thanks for agreeing to be interviewed for a second time. Last time we spoke was December 2017. A long time ago. Really cold. It was a long <laughs> time ago. Um, and it's now July 2019. So I'm sat here in my shorts and it's boiling hot, <laughs> <laughs> which is the exact opposite. Of so I'm a little bit distracted because you're there in your shorts. <laughs> So you were preparing for the show at Woodhorn, which was part of your PhD when we first spoke, and you were in the process of making a mammoth 30 works for that exhibition. Yeah. So how did that go? It went really well. It, it went better than I expected, to be quite honest. Um, I, I suppose that show was a, it was a major part of my PhD, and I didn't have um, a, a real expectation of um, the kind of... I suppose the the uh, popularity of it um, it was extremely successful. It had I think the figure was around eighteen thousand um, visitors over over the the months that it was on. Um, so it ran from May until September, and um, it was very favourably reviewed uh, by the Arts Council. So it was Woodhorn Museum's first season as a Arts Council England funded NPO. Um, and the the Ashington paintings, which was the the name of the show, was a a key part of a season that was called uh, Pittman Painters Resurfacing, where that collection, the Ashington Group collection of that Woodhorn have as a, a highlight of their um, of their offer, was uh, pushed to the fore of the the whole season. Um, so it was accompanied by uh, an exhibition called Pittman Painters Unseen, which I curated. Um, and together with the permanent collection of Ashington Group work, which is permanently at Woodhorn, um, it formed the biggest exhibition or the most complete or comprehensive exhibition of Ashington Group work that's ever been staged. Um, and it, I think it kind of repositioned what I do a little bit. So my thinking for having these two exhibitions on at the same time was all about a a kind of discursive relationship between a historical collection and a contemporary art collection and how those two relative positions could be used as jumping off points um, to kind of recontextualise each other. Um, And yeah, it went really, really well. Um, I I couldn't have been happier with it, to be quite honest. One of your concerns when we first spoke was that you were worried uh, uh, that your response might or had the potential to be, I think you used the term glib I think mm, in what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. so it didn't feel like that at all I, th- I think it it was a little bit risky in some ways because um, the average audience uh, for 
Woodhorn. It's a place, it's a destination location. You have to go there to go there. Um, and it's not particularly a contemporary art audience. It's it's families, it's uh, people who are coming to see the, the permanent mining display and stuff. Um, and it has an incredible offer for contemporary art, but it's not the... Um, it's not the focus of the site. It's more of a heritage site. So having what could be, in some ways, quite difficult work, you know, that they, they weren't, the paintings aren't particularly pretty. They're they're not, um, they're not flattering Ashington, but they're at the same time they're they're not knocking it either. They're they're quite matter of fact. Um, and a key difference between my response and the. The Ashington Group work is there. There aren't any people in in my paintings, which you, you could say was a, a kind of reflection on the the loss of the defining industry of the region. The the mining's all gone, and and Ashington, which was founded on mining and for mining, doesn't have its defining role anymore. So it's it it's kind of um, it's in in the process of this post-industrial reinvention of itself, mm. where everybody. Um, used to be employed by the mine or industries around the mine now the biggest employer in Ashington is the Asda Superstore um, which is on the site of the, uh, the the old football ground um, and that features in a in the paintings um, so it, I think the it, in some ways it was quite a dangerous position um, for the work but yeah I think it I think it worked. I, th- I think yeah. the, the, the response was overwhelmingly positive. So when you're coming towards the end of a project like that, how do you prepare for what comes next? You did that as part of the PhD, so I'm assuming that you had another component, a written component that went alongside that, but then you've obviously got what comes after in terms of your own practice. So mm. what did that look and feel like for you? It was important that the Ashington paintings weren't uh, a kind of anomaly in the in the timeline or the continuum of what my work looked like visually um so i, I don't think that i don't think they are um but i think any kind of visual artist is well i suppose you, you kind of foster this attitude where you you seldom say no to something um so at the same time as i was working on the paintings and i'm, I'm currently in the writing up period of the of the thesis I've I'm still getting kind of irons in the fire for projects going forward and I'm in a quite a good position at the minute um, where people keep offering me things right. do you want to come and do this but um, at the same time um, a lot of that comes from um, self-generated uh, interest you know kind of getting your yourself out there getting your name out there and just kind of sticking around long enough and keep keeping at it i guess um so next i've got a um in when is it 20 2020 i'm I'm working with um hartlepool museum service and i'm going to be curating a a a rehang or a new exhibition from their archive in hartlepool art gallery around their 100th anniversary um there's a solo exhibition at van gallery coming up um and i'm putting together a a curated uh, painting exhibition. Um, so in terms of those works from the show that you did at Woodhorn, 
what have those works gone on to do? Have they have they gone on to be shown in other contexts for you? And is is that obviously? I'm assuming that's a sales opportunity for you as an mm. artist. Well, that was surprising. Um, so commercially, um, I did really well out of the the Woodhorn exhibition. Uh, about half of the works sold, right. and I I didn't approach it as a selling exhibition at all. It was very far from from my thoughts. And um, like I said about it not really being a commercial or a, or a contemporary art gallery um, made it all the more surprising. But I think the, the absolute close link with the vernacular of the, of the town, of the, of the region and of the industry was um, a, a real kind of strong thing that I suppose, you know, just a kind of perfect storm of, of yeah. uh, circumstances that worked really well. Um, some of the work has gone to different exhibitions. So one of them is in the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition at the moment. And it's, I think the work stands up on its on its own as individual pieces, but they they were stronger as a, as a whole group in, and in Ashington. One of them is actually entering the, um, the Yale Collection of British Art in New York. Right. Um, so it's quite nice to get a little bit of Ashington in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the RA, show that one of those pieces has gone to do you feel the need to interpret that work or kind of articulate the meaning and the relationship that it has with that bigger body of work for that kind of show it's impossible in that context just with the nature of what the RA summer exhibition is that absolute bombast of the salon hang and everything so the the titling of all of the work has some something in the in brackets afterwards that has a an indicator to uh, a specificity of a location. Yeah. So the painting that's in there is called something like Untitled Playground Painting Hurst, which is refers to Hurst Park in, in Ashington. But somebody asked me um, online the other day whether Hurst refers to the work of Derek Hurst, who's a, an artist um, who has some work in the Lang Gallery that I showed, I selected and showed with right. in an exhibition a few years ago. And uh, it was act- actually his um, his niece, I think. Um, so I had to let her down gently and go, oh, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think whenever I've, when I've shown the, the Ashington paintings outside of that tight context, something else happens, they become something different, they become more about, less about a... a a geographical specificity and more about uh, them being a, a standalone thing. Yeah. Um, I think some of them will work better than others in that kind of context. So you were also doing quite a bit of teaching when we last spoke and we talked quite a lot about that interesting feeling that you have when you're a student and that chasm between being a student and a practicing or a professional mm. artist. So are you still involved in that process at the moment? Kind of indirectly, so the, the teaching I was doing was term by term. Right. So that 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 finished um, in the summer, and um, I've I've still kind of maintained a relationship with a lot of the students. So I, now it it's quite an interesting position because the first year that I've seen go through a couple of different years have just graduated. Right. Okay. So that that's really nice to see the degree shows and whatnot. Uh, but people have been getting in touch with me specifically for um, exactly the kind of things you've just been talking about. You know, the kind of that. Oh, how do I get a studio then? Yeah. Um, just in a kind of an open. I've got a question. You'll be able to answer it. And also, yeah. I've been um, 
writing references for people and uh so one of the, a, a girl that i wrote a reference for or a letter of recommendation for is now doing a residency at the british school at rome right, um okay. so i'm really jealous yeah. <laughs> so is there anything else that's changed significantly for you since we last spoke so in terms of uh, i'm guessing kind of representation or the way that you're putting yourself out there um i think in terms of kind of how I, I function, probably not that much, really. Um, I think the Ashington um, exhibition kind of raised my stock a little bit, not only in terms of um, sales, but in terms of uh, the, the media attention and the, that bigger audience that it got, um, and having work enter uh, public collections as well. So two of those paintings have, have entered the, the museum's Northumberland collection. I think the just that shift in context. I think when whenever work is is put in a slightly different context, something slightly different happens. I think post exhibition, a lot of this uh, my time has been really coming to terms with what a huge undertaking writing a thesis is. Uh, <laughs> so I think in that last conversation, uh, I was suggesting that I might take uh, an unpaid year to, yeah. to write up. I'm going to be going to the wire. <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, I'm on about forty-three thousand words now, so I've, I've got I've got the words. Yeah. Don't know if any of it makes any sense. <laughs> so, have you got an aspiration for what you want to do with that side of the PhD at the end of it? Not really. Um, so, I'm I'm, a, I'm one of the Ashington Group trustees, um, and a lot of other things on that kind of level of of uh, opened up since the PhD. So I'm also a member of the Board of Trustees at Newcastle Arts Centre now and a member of the Executive Committee at the Contemporary British Painting uh, Collective. Those things have happened kind of post-PhD. In terms of the future of the, the research, I think my involvement with the Ashington Group um, as a trustee is, is obviously an ongoing thing. And um, there have been whispers of um, an interest in bringing it up to a to a more international audience again. Right. Um, at the moment, I'm too far too close to to it to uh, really have any enthusiasm to get. I think after uh, my viva is in January. After that, I want to kind of step back from Ashington yeah. for a bit. I was going to say because it's quite easy for those things to start defining you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I'm kind of wary of that. Um, so the making the exhibition in Hartlepool next year, um, so I'm from Hartlepool, it'd be a little bit like the, the prodigal son returning, but nobody really caring. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it'll be interesting to work with that collection and there is, we are talking about potentially making a new body of work. Um, so after the centenary, the art gallery is going to close for refurbishment and then reopen, um, with an exhibition. I'm wary of becoming that guy who kind of makes paintings about a place and then goes right. on to the next one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it kind of, I never really know what, if something kind of piques my interest and there's a reason to do it, I'll definitely do it. Um, but in terms of a, a direction, I guess it's just about, I suppose I'm after the PhD is going to be about making more work again, yeah. uh, making work outside of that Ashington uh, context and outside of making that big body of work that was for a particular purpose. Um, so we'll be making work for the next solo exhibition that is 
more kind of general and less specific yeah. and more to the the concern that I have as a as a painter about historical specificity yeah so when you've been moving forward from project to project are you thinking about continuity in terms of your work as a larger body of painting or how you as an artist might be understood not consciously I think the the work has a continuum and a continuity whether you like it or not right. um, and I think I have a in, in some ways the the process that I use to make paintings where whereby I research a historical event visit that site of that event and make paintings from whatever I find at the at the site in some ways that was really conceived to avoid my paintings kind of looking like each other to an extent that inevitably happens so I think something that the experience of making the Ashington paintings which was 30 works within uh, September to May uh, 2017 to 2018 making that amount of work in that short amount of time necessitated a, and catalyzed a, a certain kind of development in in how i paint yeah um which kind of is in in dialogue with the the ashton group just to briefly nip back to the the phd but um it catalyzed emerging trends going forward yeah. um so there's so in on that wall that you're looking at as we as we talk um there's a there's a few paintings with very thin paint showing the color of the wood the wood support as a compositional device which is taken from yeah. um the ashington paintings and yeah. the, the ashington group work um in terms of kind of what i think about when i'm when i'm making it sometimes if if there is a link with past work it might only present itself after the event really yeah I see. um yeah it's very much a, a response to painterly problems yeah on a case by case basis. So we talked about advice that you might give for either new or recent graduates in the first part of the interview. Is there anything that you want to add to that? I think the thing for new graduates is to bear in mind that there's no right or wrong way to do it. And the experiences that I might have had or you might have had or any other person who's still doing it might have had aren't the same. You know, yeah. it's um there's no right or wrong way to do it, but the thing that um, everyone who, who is doing it will have in common is kind of putting the hours in yeah. and putting the hours in at the call first. I use a slight uh, mining pun. <laughs> um, and, you know, that that hasn't that hasn't changed, that won't change. Yeah. There, there's always going to be luck. There's always going to be nepotism. There's always going to be people yeah. um, who have c come from an advantage background or maybe have advantageous uh connections or whatever um so it's not a level playing field yeah. but the thing that everyone who's yeah. doing it has in common is they're working hard and yeah. work hard stick around uh <laughs> say your prayers and eat your vitamins and uh <laughs> something might happen <laughs> okay that's great uh thank you very much for your time cheers Thanks for listening to the podcast. 
Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 